Amen. I, oh, I love that great hymn. You'll know the line I love in it. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Man, I count on that. I don't know about you, but I need his mercies anew and afresh every single day, right? Amen. You may have a seat. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Chan. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Spanish River Church. And uh, we're continuing our series, as Pastor Tim said, uh, through encountering Jesus, encountering Christ. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. That's the text we're going to be in this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into that. All right. Heavenly Father. Many of us have come in this morning with weighty, weighty issues on our hearts. Many of us are struggling. Many of us feel overwhelmed. Many of us feel anxiety and fear. But Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that as we open up your word, ah, that this morning, new mercies we'll see. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing that. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. And so we're continuing this series entitled Encountering Christ. And the series is taking us through five post-resurrection encounters that Jesus had with people. And when he encountered these people after his resurrection, these encounters radically changed their lives forever. And this morning, we are going to look at Thomas's encounter with Jesus. Now, historically, Thomas has been known as what? Doubting, yeah, doubting Thomas. Man, can you be, can you imagine being known for doubting? Can you imagine your whole life being defined by doubt. I mean, that would be pretty, pretty insane uh, to live your life in that way. But the truth is, is that many of us, far too many of us, allow doubt to define our lives. I mean, doubt robs us of the life that God desires to give us. Doubt uh, robs us of truly living life in such a way that we can experience the power of God in our lives. And so Thomas was haunted with doubt and skepticism. I mean, it was the very first Easter Sunday, the sun was going down, and you can picture Thomas off in a field somewhere by himself in the dark, trying to make sense of it all with the flashes of Jesus' bloody death racing through his mind, coupled with the flashbacks of everything that had happened over the course of three years of following after Jesus. I mean, Thomas had seen everything. He was one of the 12 that Jesus picked to be his disciples. I mean, he spent three years with Jesus. Can you imagine that? I mean, if you had a question, I mean, any question, a question about the Bible, a question about all of creation, that your life group leader was Jesus. And so all you had to do was ask God the Son, and he would give you answers. Now, he saw all of the following things with his own eyes. He saw Jesus cast out demons. 
He saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus befriend sinners and tax collectors and hang out with them. He saw Jesus tell a life-threatening storm to be calm, and the winds and the waves obeyed the authority and the power of his voice. He saw Jesus turn the contents of the little boy's lunchbox into a feast for 5,000 and their families. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus give blind uh, to give sight to two blind men at different times. He saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt and the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a few days later, he hears those same crowds shout, crucify him, crucify him. He sat at the Passover table, in particular the First Communion, as the Lord's Supper was instituted. His feet were washed by Jesus. He was there when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. He was there when Jesus was mocked. And even though he might not have personally seen Jesus crucified, he was keenly aware of the death that Jesus would suffer. Now, all of these memories sat with Thomas alone in that darkened field. How could this Jesus who raised people from the dead have his story end in death. It just didn't make sense to Thomas. And he was filled with doubt. It was so disorienting. He had to be alone. He had to grieve and mourn alone. And meanwhile, that same night... The other disciples found themselves in an upper room with the doors locked out of fear. I mean, can you imagine the vast array of emotions that must have filled that room that night? A room filled with fear and yet elation and doubt and wonderment. I mean, on the one hand, you can imagine Peter and John sharing their story of finding the tomb empty earlier that morning along with Mary Magdalene. A story intended to bring hope to those who were in the room. And yet, on the other hand, there was most certainly must have been this doubt, this skepticism about whether or not Mary Magdalene and Peter and John's experience was real. Could it be that Jesus had really risen from the dead? Or were the last three years devoted to some David Koresh drink the Kool-Aid experience? That room had to be heavy with emotions. And in the midst of all the rush of emotions, Jesus appeared. And he offered a benediction in the midst of the most horrific anxiety. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he showed them his crucifixion wounds and he breathed on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, what an unbelievably transformational moment the disciples experienced in that upper room. But yet, meanwhile, Thomas is alone in a field wrestling with his doubt, wrestling with his fears. He was confused and alone, and this is why we're told in verse 24, look at it with me, it says, Now Thomas was one of the twelve called the twin and was not with them when Jesus came. He missed it. I mean, he missed Jesus appearing to the disciples. I mean, have you ever missed something big? 
a big event. I, I, I did my undergraduate at UCF. Go Knights, right? Any Knights in the room? Yeah, yes, national champions. Oh, there's some skeptics and doubters in the room, huh? Well, this message is for you. I'm just kidding, right? Like, so when I was at UCF, it was before they had the new stadium on campus there. And so we would watch it, and there wasn't a big screen, a big screen uh, video monitor. And so, like, I'd be sitting there watching the whole game intently, and all of a sudden, like, I'd get distracted. I don't know, like a butterfly, you know, flew by, you know. I'm looking around, and the biggest play of the game happens. And I miss it. There's no video replay to show me what happened. I'm just hearing accounts of what happened from people around me. I mean, have you ever missed a big event? For parents in here, uh, you may have missed a mile marker moment in your child's life. Their first word, their first step, their big game, their big dance recital. If so, you've experienced a little bit of what Thomas experienced here. I mean, it's a climactic point in the movie and Thomas is in the theater restroom and he misses it and so we're told in verse 25 that upon returning to the upper room the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord I mean you could just hear the disciples telling Thomas he was here Thomas we saw him. We saw the scars. We heard his voice. It's unbelievable. Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. Now, we shout those words every Easter, and yet many of us have difficulty receiving this news with joy. I mean, Thomas's response was less than enthusiastic. Look with me at verse 25. He says, He says this, he says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You can just imagine Thomas saying, seriously? That I've been out in the field confused and alone, ridden with grief, and you're telling me that the risen Jesus showed up here? And the disciples are going like, yep, you missed it. And Thomas is going, you mean he was in this room, he showed you his scars, that it's going to take a lot more for me to believe unless I touch those scars, I will never believe. Now, here's the good thing about Thomas, is that he's not some naive optimist. He doesn't just jump in and start drinking the Kool-Aid with no consideration of what he's jumping into. I mean, the good thing about Thomas is he is, um, you know, not this naive optimist just blindly believing anything and everything. Thomas isn't going to fall for some conspiracy theory. He wants to know that it is for real that it is true. But here's the problem with Thomas, is that he wants to put, to make faith conditional. Look at what Thomas says. He goes, unless I see and I touch his scars, I will never believe. Let me ask you this question. What kind of conditions 
do you put on God? I mean, we've all done it, if we're honest. We've all said those tragic words, saying, God, if you do this or that, then I will believe. Or maybe it's the other way. You say, God, unless you do this or that, then I'll never believe. And so like Thomas, you're captivated by doubt. What kind of conditions do you place on God? Notice that God doesn't immediately respond to Thomas's doubts. According to verse 26, Thomas sits with his doubts for eight days. I mean, considering the circumstances, that had to be a cruci- excruciating eight days. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wrestled through your doubts? Have you ever truly wrestled through the claims of Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished for you on the cross? I mean, we all doubt. I think one of Satan's greatest tactics is to try to convince us that we're the only ones that struggle with doubt. That we are alone in our doubts. But we're not. Every single one of us struggle with doubt, whether you're a Christian um, or you haven't yet come to Christ yet. The thing we have in common is we all struggle with doubt. Now, this, this strategy that Satan gets us to believe that we're alone in our doubts, this myth is busted by Thomas's story. Because Thomas is a disciple of Jesus. He saw everything Jesus did. And yet, he still struggles with doubt. And so do you and I. And so this morning, I I, I want to speak for a moment to those who are not yet Christians. You're a skeptic. Now, all, all of us have loved ones and all of us have friends who struggle to believe in the resurrection. I mean, you may be here this morning and you have reservations about the resurrection of Jesus. You struggle with believing in the supernatural. The fact that, that, that Jesus was God the Son and that he was born of a virgin and that he was crucified and on the third day he overcame sin and death on us and rose again for the third day. You struggle with wrapping your heart and mind around the supernatural. But let's just take a moment and I want to invite you to doubt your doubts. I want to invite you to doubt your doubts. The, uh, your doubt belies a position of faith whether you realize it or not. A faith that may well be misplaced. I've had the conversations with people and at the end of the day they do struggle with the fact of the supernatural. Can I believe in the supernatural? And I always ask, what is your alternative? What's your alternative? And it almost always, the conversation almost always goes this way. It says, well, I don't believe in a God. I believe that everything in the universe that we see came because of the Big Bang. And and I always love to be respectful. I was like, okay, I'll give you that. Let's assume that's true. Let's assume that everything in this infinite world in which we see and can't see came about because of a Big Bang. 
But then you have to ask the question, where did the Big Bang come from? What is the Big Bang? It's something that is supranatural. It's something that happened above nature. And so now you're left with the questions that's hard to prove scientifically. Like, what was the ultimate cause of that bang? That question you can't answer scientifically, so you're forced to put your faith in something that cannot be defined scientifically. And so you need to doubt your doubts. Maybe your conclusions are wrong. Now, if you're here or you're listening online, man, and you're struggling with doubt, you're struggling with putting your faith in a risen Savior, I'm glad you're listening. This is a space, a safe space for you. I would love to get to know you and give you the space to process your doubts and to help you come to believe in Jesus and find life in him. Okay, let me talk to the Christian skeptic. Let me talk to all of us who doubt, struggles with, and maybe you, you, you believe in the resurrection, but you doubt in a dozen different ways. You doubt God in a, different, in a dozen different ways. We're all theologians. Every attitude, thought, and action of our lives is an outpouring of what we believe in our hearts God to be. Our everyday struggles with fear, and control and approval and satisfaction can all be traced back to who we believe God in our hearts to be. Now, A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. My friend Jeff Vanderstelp speaks of four aspects of God's character and connects what we believe about God to the practical implications of our everyday lives. He speaks of God's goodness and grace and greatness and glory. And when we doubt that God is good and great and gracious and glorious, it leads us to some very destructive patterns in our lives. And so let's unpack this. For example, God is good, so I don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. If you take a let me just repeat that. God is good, and so I don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. This means that God satisfies our needs. We don't need to look to other things to find our satisfaction. We don't need to look to created things to find our sat ultimate satisfaction. We are free to enjoy the good gifts knowing that ultimately he alone satisfies. He alone is good. But like Adam and Eve, when we doubt God's goodness and we look to created things for ultimate satisfaction, we, think, we cling to things that we think are crucial to our comfort the result is that we battle anxiety in our hearts because our hearts know that these things are fleeting things. And the result is that we can experience deep disappointments in life because that someone or something will ultimately let us down. And so when we doubt God's goodness, our life is plagued with anxiety and fear. Secondly, God is great. And I don't have to be in control. God is great. 
So I don't have to be in control. This means that God is sovereign. He is all powerful. He alone is control. He holds the universe in the hollow of his hand. And therefore, we don't have to be in control. We don't have to stress and worry. We are free to rest in his power because he is great. However, when we doubt that God is great, we become control freaks. I know I do. And I'm confident that you do too. We try to control everything and everyone around us. And oftentimes, we lose the very things and people we're trying to control. I mean, we see this play out all the time in parenting. When parents fail to believe that God is great, that he's sovereign, he's in control of even their children's lives. We become control freaks and we hover of our children. And the more we try to control them, the more they try to pull away from us. Third, God is gracious. So I don't have to prove myself. God is gracious. I don't have to prove myself. This means that God looks at us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us uh, precisely what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness, absolute acceptance in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we don't need to compete with each other to prove ourselves to God. We are free to love each other from a position of acceptance rather than in pursuit of acceptance. And to the degree that you believe that God is gracious is the degree that it will free you to love people not in pursuit of their approval or acceptance, but from a position of acceptance, that kind of love is radical and freeing. But here's the problem. We far often doubt, too often doubt that God is gracious. And even though he describes himself over and over and over again in Scripture that he is merciful and gracious, we struggle to believe it. We struggle to live in the reality of that truth in our everyday lives. We doubt that he can love us, that he can truly forgive us, that he is merciful. And so we live in this quiet bondage of shame and guilt and condemnation, fearing that if people really discovered who we are, that we would be rejected. And so we never let people get too close. There's a veneer that we put up. There, there's a filter that we put up to never let people see who we really are because we fear rejection, but yet at the same time, our hearts long to know and be known. Now, fourthly, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. I mean, He's glorious. So I don't have to fear others. This means that God is ultimate in the universe. Therefore, we don't need to fear other people or events. And also, as we understand this, we come to the realization that it's not about us. And so it frees us. It radically yates us out of these small, self-absorbed lives. And we're free to die to ourselves in the knowledge that he is glorious. We find freedom and joy in reveling in the glory of God. And however, however often we doubt that God is glorious. We make people big and God small. And so we live in the fear of approval of man. 
when we already have all the acceptance and approval that we will ever need in Christ Jesus. And so we live in fear of rejection, letting other people control us because we doubt that God is glorious. You see, putting your faith in the resurrection reminds us that God is good and he's great and he's gracious and he's glorious. So let me ask you, how are you doubting God this morning? Maybe you're doubting his goodness. Maybe you're doubting his greatness. And that's playing out with stress and anxiety in your life. Maybe you're doubting his graciousness as that's playing out with shame and condemnation. Maybe that's, you doubt that he is glorious and so you live in the fear of man instead of in the approval of the one who's given so much for you. So how are you doubting God? How are you going to deal with your doubts? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? This brings us back into Thomas's story. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Picture it, the Sunday following the very first Easter, Thomas has been wrestling with his doubts for an entire week. I mean, could it be true? Could it really be true that Jesus has risen from the dead? Look at verse 26, it says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I mean, Jesus enters the room. This is the second time Jesus just poof, pops into a room with his disciples. And again, everyone freaks out. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. And I love what happens next. According to verse 27, he makes a beeline for Thomas. I mean, Jesus shows up fashionably late to the party, poof, pops into the room, freaks everybody out, and he could have hung out with anyone in that upper room. And then as the risen king of the universe, he was undoubtedly the life of the party in more ways than one. And yet he doesn't stop at the punch barrel or the wine barrel, right? He makes a beeline for Thomas, and he meets Thomas right in the middle of his doubts. Is that the Jesus you know? A Jesus that loves you, a Jesus that meets you in the middle of your doubts, a Jesus that isn't afraid of your doubt or your skepticism, a Jesus big enough to handle your biggest doubts. Jesus heads straight for Thomas. Look at verse 27. He says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hands and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe that Jesus is capable of moving all grounds for unbelief. He says, you want to touch the scars? Go for it, Thomas. Yet something happens when Thomas encounters the risen king. Notice that there's no indication that Thomas actually touched Jesus' scars. In fact, in verse 29, we'll see that Thomas believed because he saw Jesus, not because he touched Jesus. Seeing Jesus for who he really is is a way of revealing to us uh, the absurdity of the conditions that we put on believing. Jesus says, do not believe, but believe. He says, crown me or crucify me. He calls us to lay down the if you do this, then I'll follow you way of thinking. Thomas, right in the middle of his doubts, had a collision with the risen king, an encounter with Christ. And it brought about the greatest confession we see in all the 
of Scripture. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. God is not offended by our investigations. He welcomes it. He says, come poke around so you can get to the place where you can say, my Lord, my God. Thomas's response to Jesus becomes one of the most powerful statements of belief that we see in Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas believed that Jesus was God and he confessed him as Lord. The phrase chanted in Thomas's day was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Yet Thomas rejects that cry and says, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. I think many things can be our Lord and God. But the question is, is Jesus your Lord and God? I mean, you cannot reject God without having a God substitute. We will always serve and worship something or someone. And the real question becomes, who or what is your Lord? Who or what are you putting your faith in? Because your doubts belie the fact of where your faith is placed. Now, this is an unmistakable confession of a changed man, of a believing man. Doubting Thomas is not completely an accurate title for Thomas. Because of his encounter with Jesus that night, by the end of the party, doubting Thomas became declaring Thomas. In fact, he would go on to preach and declare the gospel throughout India, declaring his allegiance to a risen king. History tells us there was no doubt in Thomas's heart and mind that Jesus was a resurrected savior. In fact, he would give his life. Tradition tells us that he was speared through and was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Not doubting Thomas, declaring Thomas, Jesus is my God and my Lord. Now you may be sitting here this morning and you're hearing Thomas's story, but you'll know what I'm interested in is your story. How does your story end? Will you continue in doubt or will you declare that Jesus is your Lord, my God? Maybe you doubt that God is good, that he can heal deep wounds in your past or broken relationships, that he can really bring the satisfaction your heart desires. Maybe you doubt that God is gracious and that he really loves you and forgiven you. Maybe you doubt that God is great and that he's in control of everything. Maybe you doubt that he is really glorious, that he can free you from the fear of man so that you can live reveling in the glory of your creator with an unspeakable joy. Here's the good news. The tomb is empty. Christ has risen. That story will forever change the story of your life. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, oh, well, if Jesus showed up in the room like Thomas, then I would believe. Jesus anticipated that you would say that. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. According to Jesus, you and I can have an encounter with the risen Christ through his word. Here's how I know this. Look at verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. All the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, everything Thomas witnessed was written 
so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in him. That's the reward of doubting your doubts and declaring that Jesus is my Lord and my God. This morning, you may be here and you're doubting. You're struggling with doubt. I'm glad you're here. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to let Jesus know that. Let's just pray right now. Say, Jesus, I struggle with doubt like Thomas. I doubt. I struggle with believing that you are a risen Savior. I struggle that you are good, that you are great, that you are gracious, that you are glorious. Jesus, I want to believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are faithful. May by your spirit we encounter Jesus in a way that your mercies are new and afresh this morning. May we go from doubting to declaring that Jesus, you are Lord, you are my God.